Thank you for listening to this podcast from The Resting Place Tampa. We hope you feel honored, empowered, and full of faith because of what you hear. And we would love to see you at a gathering soon. For more resources like this, head to trpfamily.org. Amen. Thank you. Uh, It's great to be here. I'd rather be here than the greatest disc attack in Tampa. So I have more fun here than anywhere else. It's great. Uh, Great, great sense of God's presence. Um, Unabashedly charismatic. Because I believe in experiencing God, not just reading about God. So this is a liturgical, heavenly, earthly experience all in one when we see heaven and earth joined together in worship. So this is a special place. It's a great name, the resting place, because ultimately we're called to rest in Jesus and operate out of a place of rest, even when we're working, as it says in Hebrews 4, let us labor to enter into his rest so we could both work and rest at the same time when we labor under the grace and power of Christ. So thank you for having me. It's a real joy to be here. I feel like I'm part of the family already. Amen. When I met Caleb's beautiful wife and children and then his mother and father, I said, I'm in the family now. It's usually... Pastors don't want me to meet their parents and their wife. And No, I'm kidding. Um, but, yeah, it's great. I love what God is doing. And Caleb definitely has a very strong apostolic call. And by him being a part of our collective of movement leaders from all over the world, it's going to accentuate and accelerate his apostolic uh, journey Um, And so when we have these kind of collectives and we have assemblies and we hear what God is saying at different levels of meetings and uh, people, we, we accelerate our calling. So when you're not in a functional community of faith, it limits your ceiling. It limits you. So you can never maximize your calling unless you hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches like it says seven times in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So I'm going to attempt to talk about going back to Eden. Going back to Eden. Um, When we think about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not the church. The kingdom of God is the rule of God that emanates from the throne of God. The kingdom of God rules over all, but the church is the main agent of the kingdom, utilizing the gifts of the Spirit and the corporate Christ in us to bring God's rule on the earth. And so the theme of the Edenic kingdom Paradise, John Milton, the blind poet, wrote Paradise Lost, which is an incredible poem that you should read. Uh, Well, this is about Paradise Found, Paradise Restored. And when Jesus announced the kingdom of God, 
He was talking about returning to Eden. He, as the last Adam, was announcing that, okay, now I'm going to realign earth and heaven together by announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's why it's not an accident. We find in Luke chapter 10, when the disciples, the 70, went out, which corresponds to the 70 nations that were lost in Babylon, in the Tower of Babel, he sent 70 to undo the division of the nations in Genesis 10 and 11. And he said, after they preached and healed the sick and cast out demons, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And so when we preach and announce and act out the kingdom, we're undoing the division of Babel, and we're bringing everybody back under the Lordship of Christ, which is what Pentecost did. It wasn't just people getting the Holy Ghost and speaking in other tongues. Every nation represented there in Jerusalem pointed back to the nations that were scattered and given over to false gods in Genesis 11. And so when the nations were divided because of languages, they were now united because of tongues. And when Jesus sent out 70, he was making a statement, there's no accidents numerically, that he was now reclaiming all the nations from the gods that were formerly ruling over the Gentiles. And so when we understand the purpose of Christ, he didn't just die on the cross so you could go to heaven. My books on the kingdom totally dispel that. My first book, Ruling in the Gates, which influenced the whole apostolic movement in the late 90s, um, has whole chapters on this. But the kingdom of God is not just about you going to heaven. It's about reconciling the world back to Christ. It says actually says that. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20, he reconciled the world back to himself. The word world in the Greek is cosmos, which means not just the people in the world, but the systems that support the people. God so loved the world in the Greek is God so loved the cosmos, not just the people, but the systems. God is the God of economics, of politics, of education, music, art, when you see Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he's the one who started all this. Matter of fact, you could see the genesis of mathematics in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, he created time and space, divided time and space with the lunar and the sun lights. We see he made Adam. He separated from Adam. He subtracted his rib so that he could add his wife, so they could what? Bear fruit and multiply. So we see all of the foundational aspects of mathematics and time and seasons just in one chapter. I could go through the whole Bible and show you the genesis of so many things that we take for granted today. So in the eastern part of the church, they always understood Christ coming not just to individually save us, but to recapitulate the whole universe, meaning to restore the universe back into alignment with Christ. So it's about the universe, not just about us. 
I remember writing that once on Facebook, and I offended a narcissistic Christian who said, it is about me. They think the Bible is God's love letter just for me. Well, it is a love letter, but it's not just for you. It's a lot bigger than you. I'm trying to behave here because I want Caleb to be able to invite me back without any controversy. Should I quit now? Quit behaving? Exit stage left? Is there a moped out there I could hop on? As an example, uh, let me just say this. So what one of my roles in the body of Christ is to help the church go back to an understanding of Scripture, not, not just as literal, but as metaphor, showing the patterns of Scripture so that when you look at a verse, let's say Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. You look at that verse and you see beginning and ending and then you look at Genesis 1 and then Revelation 22, um, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You're part of the beginning and the end corporately. You understand, you, you have to look at how all 66 books, because it was inspired by one author, are communicating together. So you don't just interpret one verse by the verse, but you have to interpret it through the meta-narrative of Scripture. There are three meta-narratives in Scripture. One is... The kingdom of God, second is redemption, and the third is Christ, a Christological interpretation of Scripture. So when you have those three big pictures, any verse in the Bible can connect to one of those three themes. So you don't interpret the Bible just by the verse. Every verse is interpreted by its chapter, every chapter by the book it's in, every book by the testament it's in, and each testament by all 66 books based on one of those three major meta-narratives of king, kingdom, and redemption. That goes through every verse, every number, every metaphor, every symbol, and if I had time I could show you that, but I'm just going to show you small little examples of that. So my goal today is not that you would remember everything I said. I'm just trying to trigger beauty in you. I'm trying to trigger creativity. I'm trying to trigger something inside of you so that we're now continuing the worship through preaching. We're continuing the worship through having a liturgical experience together by seeing the glory of God even through the logos of God or the word of God, how the whole Bible communicates one thing. It points to Jesus ultimately. It's all just in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 to 25, 27 actually. Um, it says, Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, everything is significant. Water here is significant. Three days in the wilderness, significant. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water, because it was bitter, significant. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, significant. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. 
Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. According to the great teacher of teachers in the 3rd century, Gregory of Nyssa, he interprets the story very typically the way the early church did as the following. He said, those who left the slavery of Egypt went on a journey through the wilderness to find their ultimate rest in God, ultimately fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So he depicted the wilderness journey out of slavery as our journey right now. So we're all in the wilderness. So we have a taste of heaven, but we're really not fully there yet, right? We're not fully in paradise. We're supposed to participate with Jesus to restore the world and align it back to God, which will be complete when Jesus comes back. But until then, we're prophetically preparing the, the world for that. And so right now, we're in the wilderness. I mean, how many know things could be better in your life? <laughs> things could be better in your finances. Things could be better in your home, in your marriage, with your children, with your job, with your church. There's no perfect thing because we're still in the wilderness, ultimately going in a journey with Jesus to the promised land. And so we left the slavery of Egypt. Romans 6 talks about release from slavery. Uh, 7, the law, Sinai, receiving the law. 8, the glory of God. That's another conversation. But the whole Bible speaks to this. So they left the slavery of Egypt. Three days without water signifies Jesus three days buried without water, without physical sustenance. The log represents the cross that turned the bitterness of sin into the sweetness of paradise or eternal life, which is depicted in the water that we see even in John 7 where Jesus said, He whoever believes in me, out of his belly will flow rivers Four rivers in paradise, no accident, rivers of living water. We see also the 12 springs of water and the 70 palm trees numerically correspond to the preaching of the gospel by the 12 apostles. And then the 70s were the 70 that Jesus sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God when Satan fell like lightning. We also see the 12 sons of Jacob. So the 12 apostles were basically saying, I am now taking the kingdom uh, symbolically and, and, in, and in power to another level. Instead of 12 sons of Jacob, it's now 12 sons of God unto Christ as my ambassadors. Very powerful correspondence there. And the 70 palm trees also relate to the 70 nations uh, in Genesis chapter 10. And so we see vivid imagery here. Again, it was very common. For example, there was hymns of paradise written by one of my favorites, Saint, Saint Ephraim the Syrian, who portrayed paradise not just as a physical location, but as a state of being close to God. And when you think of Calgary, for example, Jesus was between the Garden of Gethsemane, the garden where he rose from the dead with a thief on this side, a thief on this side, he hanging on the tree of life, 
And then we see in this imagery how blood and water come out, which is the rivers of life. We see that in Ezekiel 47, Revelation 22. And so what was John saying? John was saying that in Christ, even in a torturous situation like the cross, we have heaven. Meaning, even when you're experiencing hell, if Jesus is with you, you're in heaven. And then we see how Mary Magdalene, who thought he was the gardener, which I'll get into, um, went into the tomb. And what did she see? She saw an angel on one side, an angel on another, looking down on the garment stained with blood, which depicts the Ark of the Covenant in the Most Holy Place, where there was an angel, cherubim, looking down at the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where the high priest came once a year and sacrificed the blood of an animal, put it on the lid. Paul calls Jesus the mercy seat in Romans 3.21, where he says that Jesus was a propitiation through his blood. And the word propitiation in Greek is the mercy seat through his blood. And so when Mary Magdalene went in the tomb, she experienced a most holy place because she was seeing a cherubim on either side looking at the blood. And by the grace of God, God was saying, even the most defiled place in the world, a tomb, is now turned into the most holy place because of the resurrection. And furthermore, Mary functioned as a high priest, which was only reserved for a man. And that's why some of the Roman Catholics call Mary the apostle to the apostles, because she was the first person to announce the resurrection. I'll get thrown out of the Southern Baptist for this, but that's okay. Caleb, I don't even know where I'm going this morning. I, I'm so off the notes that I don't know if I could be found. Anyway, like I said, Genesis has in seed form everything that will be revealed in the New Testament. So we start off in a garden, mountain, temple. So the Garden of Eden was literally on a mountain. You can look that up in Ezekiel 28. It was called the mountain of God. And we know it was a mountain because the rivers flowed down in Genesis 2. And so we start off in a garden mountain temple where the whole world was made as God's temple with the Garden of Eden as the most holy place, the sacred place where God emanated his glory to the whole earth. We start off in that, in that garden mountain temple and we're going to end up, Revelation 21, in a temple mountain city coming down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem. We also see the land promises that God made to Abraham for Israel eventuate in the city earth promises of reaching the whole world for Christ. And Abraham literally was not looking for a physical land of Israel. He says he was looking for a city that was invisible, that was enduring, that was to come. He's talking about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. In the Old Testament, God spoke about cattle, sheep, and goats. 
in the New Testament, the focus was on fish and oceans because the sea, in uh, Isaiah it says, the nations are like the troubled sea. The sea stands for nations, unstable nations, and the fish stand for the people. So in the New Testament, we're not just reaching Jews, we're reaching fish, we're reaching the whole world. So when Jesus announced the kingdom, he was announcing the new Eden. That the new Eden was going to be planted on the earth in seed form as a garden of life to renew and restore the earth. The way the first Adam failed to do it. That's why we have the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13 and Mark 4 where he talked about the kingdom of God being like a seed. Not an accident, sounds like a garden. And that seed becomes the largest seed and permeates the whole earth. See, when you talk about scripture like this, you evoke creativity. You evoke beauty. And I believe we're going to have a revival of aesthetics and beauty. And we're going to have the greatest artists and writers and sculptors and filmmakers, poets, songwriters, that the world has ever seen. It's going to be outdo anything we saw during the days of Beethoven and Bach, Brahms. In those days, the world came to the church to learn how to compose music. It's going to happen again. In Ezekiel 36, a prophecy about the new covenant, verse 33 to 36. Ezekiel prophesies, and he says, Thus saith the Lord, in the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, it's going to come in the new covenant, I will cause cities to be inhabited. See how the gospel is not just about individual salvation. It's about shalom for cities. The proof of the gospel is not just an individual getting delivered. It lifts whole cities. When you preach the individual gospel, you get sinners saved. When you preach the gospel to kingdom, you lift cities. Because it's always holistic. So I'm going to cause cities to be inhabited. That's all in my books here, by the way. Please buy them. I have to feed my adult children. They still come to my house and eat. And I'm lazy. I don't want to go home with books, quite frankly. Matter of fact, if you promise to read it and you don't have the money, just take it. I don't care. God will reward me or he'll give me another honorarium. I don't know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No pressure. I'm kidding. Um, so, I am not religious. I have a lot of fun preaching. Okay. So, on the day I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, sounds like a garden, tilled, going back to Adam, Genesis 2, instead of people being, uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, instead of the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by, and they will say the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. So it's describing the new covenant as a restoration of the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord, that I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted, 
replanted that which was desolate. So what we're doing is we're participating with Jesus in planting gardens. First on our own heart. You have to take care of your private garden. Then your family. Then your business, your neighborhood. It's all about planting the right seeds. Whatsoever you sow, thus shall you reap. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. So there are seven ways we can plant gardens. And I only got 15 minutes, so I may get through two or three of these. If you want, listen to the first message today. But number one, be an image bearer of God. Image reflector of God. Genesis 1, it tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. I'm sorry, and um, there was darkness upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the abyss. And then God said, let there be light. So we see that there was a manifestation of the Spirit of God. Then we fast forward to Genesis 1, 26, and it says, and God made man in his own image. So you see a glory spirit in verse 2. Then it says, let there be light. And we know that that's not the sun, moon, and stars because that wasn't created for two more days. So the light was the glory of God that penetrated the darkness and overcame the abyss. And then God said, I'm making man in my image. So it's like a mirror reflecting the glory to creation. So we see Adam was called to align heaven and earth because he was made of the dust which gave him legal authority on the earth. He was fully human. And God breathed in him the breath of life, Genesis 2, verse 6 and 7. So he was spirit and earth because he was called to be God's representative or vice region on the earth to align heaven and earth together in the most holy place called the Garden of Eden. And out of that, he was going to subdue the rest of the earth. And so the first way we are to till the garden is to reflect the glory of God. It's not just planning and strategy. It's glory. It's charismatic experience. It's power. Just like we experience a little bit today. And so when he failed, Adam failed, when he sinned, part of that glory uh, left him. And he couldn't fully reflect the glory of God, which caused problems, which we'll get into. Number two, another way we till the garden is manage the sphere of influence we're assigned to. In the same way God subdued the abyss, and the abyss in the original Hebrew, um, it was pregnant with theological messaging. The abyss is a Hebrew word for a mythical dragon in the Mesopotamian gods, and if you read Mesopotamian literature, and in Hebrew it's translated to home. It was a dragon. So it wasn't just water. It was literally referring to a false god. So what the writer of Genesis was doing is saying, no, this is the true God, Yahweh. So the spirit of God was overcoming the mythical god to home, that's what was really being said by the glory of God. And so 
when God told Adam to be in his image, it's not an accident as the Spirit of God was hovering over and keeping in check the abyss, which is metaphorically represented in oceans. Oceans in the Hebrew mindset represent instability and fluidity. Uh, that's why when you go out in the ocean, you don't know if you're coming back. That's why you better wear a life jacket. You could even be in a big ship like the Titanic and not come home. Or a, uh, you know, carnival cruise, right? A big wave could come out of nowhere and you, you, the whole place is in turmoil. Why? Because the water is very unstable. You can't tame the water. can't tame the ocean. So the abyss represents chaos. And in the midst of that abyss, there was this dragon metaphorical image that Satan operates in because Satan operates in chaos. That's why it says in 1 Timothy 3.5, one of the main qualifications of being a spiritual leader in the church is if you can't manage your house, how could you manage the house of God? If you have chaos and disorder in your house, you can't manage your books, you're always in debt, the IRS is after you, everybody, even your loan shark is after you, everybody's after you. If you can't manage your house, how could you manage the house of God? Because the church is a family of families. So Adam was called to subdue the chaos, which is why it says that the glory spirit was hovering over the abyss. And then, no accident, Genesis 1.28, a few verses later, he told Adam, subdue the earth, meaning keep it in check. Keep it in check. And that's why it says in Psalm 115, verse 16, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of men. We're called to manage the planet, to steward the planet. Number three, we till the garden of the Lord and participate with Jesus in bringing the kingdom and renewing the earth by, number three, working the field we're assigned to. So not everybody's called to be a pastor. Thank God I'm sick of pastors except for him. I hang out with a lot of pastors. But only 2% of the church are going to be called into full-time church ministry. Work, whether being a pastor or a plumber, is sacred. Hard work is as much of the part of the kingdom as being a pastor. Oh, I feel like getting Pentecostal. So the fact that the first commandment God gave Adam was to put him in the Garden of Eden, chapter 2, verse 15, to work it. Somebody say work. To work it and keep it. The fact that God put him in the Garden during paradise, before sin, means that work is holy. A lot of Christians think hard work is a curse. That's why you have a lot of lazy Christians. They think, oh, I'm just going to get in the Holy Ghost. I'm always late for work. Oh, I've been praying or I'm witnessing. No, you're fired. That's what you are. That's why Paul said, if you don't work, neither shall you eat. 
That'll go far in politics, but that's another story. And that also means when you get to heaven, you're not just going to float around on clouds. You didn't know I was a ballerina, right? I am graceful, right? So, <laughs> Adam was working. Maybe he was doing ballet, I don't know. But he was working in the garden, and one of the things God gave him to do was name the animals. So Adam had to name the animals, categorize and classify them. He became the world's first zoologist. He became the world's first botanist because by implication, he was categorizing the whole world. The world's first geologist. The world's first scientist. This man was a genius. Well, Noah only had to put them in a boat. He had to name them. Oh, it must have taken a long time. Unless he had chat GPT, then he could have done it right away. And if you don't know what that is, you missed yesterday's conference. And so he had to till the garden. Noah, as the second Adam, was called to subdue the earth because God gave him the same commandment as he did Adam. So God had to restart the whole earth. Noah, symbolically, even though he wasn't called the second Adam, he was. Because in Genesis 9-1, God said to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Sounds just like Genesis 1-28. Fill the earth, replenish it. And instead of saying, subdue it and have dominion, God said something with similar meaning. He said, in the fear of you and the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. So what was the first thing as the second Adam Noah did? Well, he planted a garden. Verse 20 of chapter 9, Noah began to be a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. Unfortunately, just like the first Adam, what did he do after he planted the vineyard? Well, he partook of a fruit, but this time he got drunk. He cultivated uh, grapes, fermented them, had too much to drink, and what happened after that? He was uncovered and naked in front of his sons. Well, after Adam and Eve sinned by partaking of a fruit, they were uncovered and knew that they were naked. See the patterns connecting everything. Jesus, as the last Adam, initially undid the sin of Adam and Eve, where it says in Genesis 3.8, she looked at the fruit, saw that it was good for wisdom, saw it was desirable to eat, and she partook of that fruit. In other words, she was saying, in spite of what God said, she said, not your will, but my will. Jesus in the garden reversed that and said, not my will, but your will be done. So in the garden of Gethsemane, not an accident, it was a garden because Jesus had to undo what the first Adam did. 
And in the Garden of Eden, he said, not my will, your will be done. And then he was uncovered like Adam and like Noah and hung in shame for our sins on the cross when they stripped him naked. And after rejecting the fruit of the tree, the vinegar, three days later, he resurrected where? In a garden. How do we know it was a garden? Well, John 12, 20, verse 14 and 15, Mary Magdalene turned around and saw Jesus standing, didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? She supposing him to be the gardener. Pointing back to the restoration of Eden. So Jesus literally sowed his life back into the ground, the dust of the earth, as the first Adam, resurrected in the spirit, reuniting heaven and earth again the way it was before the fall. And now we could drink of the river of his blood and eat the bread of his body, which is the result of his work on the cross and the vineyard of God. And we can now live forever, which is depicted and commemorated in Holy Communion. All of this Edenic imagery points to the fact that the church is called to align heaven and earth together in the in the labors as it was in the paradise of God. The last thing I'm going to share, there's so much more. I have one more point. Uh, there's seven, but you can listen to the first service. Let's talk about marriage and family and reproduction as an image of Eden. So marriage is so powerful, it's why the devil attacks it. It's ground zero for all spiritual warfare. Before there was the nation of Israel, there was marriage. Before there was the law of Moses, there was marriage. Before there was human government, shown in Genesis 9, 5, and 6, there was marriage. Marriage is the foundation of all civilization. So let's look at that. Genesis chapter 1, God told Adam and Eve, bear fruit and multiply. It just means have kids, think generationally, and have children's children. And then in chapter 2, verse 10 to 25, it says, As for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last the bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and woman were both naked and were not afraid or ashamed. And so we see Paul the Apostle picking up on this story in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water, with the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, then he says in verse 27, uh, verse 32 rather, this mystery, so he's calling marriage, and we take for granted, he's calling it a mystery. So you see here Paul in the Apostles' all understood every natural thing is pointing to something supernatural and spiritual much bigger 
As a matter of fact, uh, like the man who wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces, there are hero imagery that always depicts the common threads of returning to a place of death, of resurrection, return, and celebration. The reason why history is called his story is because his story is the fulfillment of your life as the image bearer of Christ. You can't understand your story unless you understand his story. Because his story is where your story is going, which is why you're made in the image of God. Everything you do is derivative of God. Everything you do is a shadow and type. And you're the type. He's the antitype. He is the fulfillment of your life. That's why the world will never have peace with money, with sex, illicit affairs, material goods, intellectual proudness. You'll never have what you want because your heart has a hole that's too deep, as St. Augustine said, and only God could fill it. And that's why when you come to Jesus, you experience paradise. Your story is fulfilled, and you don't have to look anymore for any other God or any other thing. Everything is fulfilled in Christ. So this is just one example. He calls marriage a mystery. Why is it a mystery? He says, this mystery is profound. Marriage is profound. Having kids is profound. Work is profound. You're profound. Your brain is profound. Everything in this world is profound. Because ultimately he points back to the ultimate of ultimates, Jesus. This mystery is profound, I am saying, because it refers to Christ and the church. Meaning, Christ is the bridegroom. We're the bride. And you could even jump to John chapter 4, the woman at the well, that depicts Jesus looking for his bride because in uh, Isaac found his bride at a well. Jacob found his bride at a well. Moses found his bride at a well. So if you were a Jew and you saw the woman at the well, you're immediately thinking of somebody finding their wife. And that woman depicted the church because she was part Gentile and part Jew. She was immoral, and that's why we're all sinners. Jesus saved a whore who dropped her bucket, went to Samaria, and told everyone about the bridegroom. But Jesus didn't find his bride. It was never consummated until you connected to the book of Revelation where there was a contrast between the Babylonian whore in Revelation 17 and 18, and then the next chapter, chapter 19, the true bride emerges, the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is commemorated in Holy Communion. We are the bride of Christ. This is some deep typology and patterns. But I have to wrap this up. So how did... Marriage point to Christ and the church. Well, the first Adam, remember chapter 2, was put to sleep by God. Sleep, according to 1 Corinthians 15 and other places, 1 Thessalonians 4, sleep is symbolic death. So Adam was put to symbolic death by God, Jesus, 
wasn't put to death by God. He said, no man takes it from me. He gave himself. He was greater than the first Adam because nobody took his life. He willingly gave his life for his bride. The first Adam was put to sleep by God, which is symbolic death. And while he was asleep, God brought forth his bride from his side. I know our translations call it the rib, but in the Hebrew, it's God split the Adam. He took the feminine part out of Adam and created woman. And that's why opposites attract, because we see something in a woman that we don't have, that we want, because originally it was part of us. And so the first instance of splitting the atom was in Genesis 2. It wasn't because of Oppenheimer. And so while he was asleep, God brought forth his bride. I'm sorry. Yeah, brought forth his bride from his side. And then when he awoke, the bride was presented to him. Well, Jesus, as the last Adam, willingly surrendered his life for humanity on the cross. And while he slept, his side was pierced by a Roman soldier. Blood and water emerged, which symbolically represented the church. And the church was presented to him after he rose from the dead. Furthermore, the ecstatic physical union between a man and a woman when they get intimate, resulting in children, depicts the ecstatic spiritual union between man and God, which is typified in Holy Communion when the church celebrates its common union with God. And when we win people to Christ, disciple them, and expand God's family. In closing... The devil was not threatened by Adam when he was single, even though he was an uberman, as Nietzsche would call him, a superman. Before there was the Marvel comics and Superman, there was Adam. Incredible physical specimen. He wasn't going to die. He was a genius. He could name the animals. He was the first taxonomist, scientist, ruler, philosopher, king that Plato was looking for. He was everything. He was the whole package. And yet the devil didn't show up. Why? Because he couldn't reproduce himself. It wasn't until God gave him a woman and he could have children that in the very next chapter, the devil showed up. The devil is not afraid of you if you're not winning souls and making disciples. As long as you're a lone ranger, I don't care how much you're fasting and praying, if you are not reproducing yourself, you're not a threat. That's probably why the devil's leaving you alone. It's probably why the main problems you have is not the devil, it's you. Because you don't want to obey God. You're always miserable and you're blaming the church for your misery. When they went to... When they went, <laughs> this whole thing's been a mic drop. Come on, what are you talking about? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, you made me forget who I was. I don't even know what I was to say, but uh, what was the last thing I said? I'm not kidding. I don't remember. Oh, no, there was something else, but anyway. I don't remember what I was going to say, but the fact of the matter is 
if you are not reproducing after your own kind, you are not a threat to the devil. And that's why a lot of times people are miserable. They just come to church to get fed, to get fed, to get fed, to get fed. And I found that if you're not volunteering after you're saved for about six months to a year, you're going to stop growing. It reminds me of Jesus ministering to the woman at the well. And they came, they went to Burger King and they got him a hamburger. And they came to Jesus, they tried to give him meat. And Jesus didn't want it. He said, I've had meat to eat. They said, did someone come and bring him food? He said, no, my meat is to do the will of my Father. If you want to get fed, do the word. Don't just hear it. And you will stop growing if you don't volunteer, if you're not winning souls, if you're not serving God, if you're not doing something, if you're not working in the garden, and you're just trying to receive, 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 is going to come to a point where you're going to stop growing. So I've already gone over my time. Why don't we stand up? You'll have me back in three years. I'll do part two. But let's just commit ourselves to the Lord. Oh, Lord, we thank you that we have meat to eat that the world doesn't know of. We eat your body, drink your blood, and then we walk this out and serve you. So, Father, as we end this, we want to ask ourselves the question, do I want to participate with Jesus? in the renewal of all things? Do I, do I want to work hard to the glory of God? Like it says in First Corinthians 10.32, that everything I do, whether it's eating or drinking, let me do it all to the glory of God. Amen. Even if I'm in a literal hell, as you change the tomb into the most holy place, that hell we're in can now be paradise because we're with Jesus. And that cross put in the bitter waters of life turns it to sweetness, not because circumstances change, but because our heart condition changed as we take up our cross and apply it to our bitterness. And so, Lord, we pray. Oh, God, one of the worship team come up Let's just allow the Lord to minister the word to us, water it. Let's fully surrender right now. Just tell the Lord you surrender. Say, not my will, but your will be done. Use me to till my garden. Use me to participate with Jesus in the renewal of all things. Use me to follow you in the context of this beautiful corporate sun called the resting place. Thank you, God, that the greatest things that are going to happen are yet to come. The people they're going to meet, the people they're going to save, the people they're going to disciple haven't yet walked in the doors. The, I just believe that the creativity in this place is going to explode. Not an accident. Caleb is a musician, and he uses that 
that rightful brain. And, and Lord, that amazing ability of creativity has gone to the whole house. We pray that great literary artists will come out of this place. Filmmakers utilizing AI, even though Hollywood can't use it because of the contract, we could. That we would begin making the greatest movies and out through Hollywood. That we would make the greatest reels, that the greatest uh, depictions of Christ. Raise up preachers and teachers and prophets, people that will be able to expound the word like they've never seen before. Let it be explosive in church planning and church planning movements and house churches and church connecting groups. And oh God, we're believing for an explosion of vision in this house. We're believing, oh God, that you have shined forth on this house. Lord, I thank you that it wasn't Caleb who brought me. It was you who sent me here to preach this message, to help release the creativity that cultural creatives will come in, that Gen X and millennials and those who come before the Gen Xs are going to stream into this place that the Sunday school, the nursery, is going to raise up generational leaders and thinkers that will transcend any one denomination, transcend any one mindset, transcend ethnocentric thinking. But there would be young people that will be able to speak to every culture as bridge builders of the world, of, of the kingdom to the world. Thank you that God so loved the world. He didn't just love Christians. He didn't love just American Christians. He didn't just love Italian or Puerto Rican Christians or Caucasian or black Christians. He loved the world. Lord, that we would have an amazing expression, an explosive vision of the love of God to this world. Even as the day of Pentecost came on the nations, that were divided, that we would not just speak in tongues, but we would go to our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth with the power of the Spirit, not just to speak in tongues, but to be your witnesses. Oh God, let it explode, let it explode, let it explode. Let there be days of fasting and prayer, travail, waiting on God until the vision unfolds. Let a restlessness come on the resting place that they would not rest until they hear from you every year to know what you call them to do. That they would not rest as long as there is one lost soul in their community. That they would not, no longer be the categories of, of, of black, white, gay, straight, red, blue, liberal, conservative, that all these categories that the world gave us would be turned from categories to humanizing people. We would not categorize, we would humanize people. We would humanize LGBTQ. We'd humanize transgender. We would humanize those who are ideologically opposed to us. We would humanize, we would love them. We would hear their story before we communicate the story to them that we would hear before we speak and that you would use us to bring a Jesus revolution to this community in Jesus name
Come on, say amen. Wow. I say thank you to Bishop Joseph. Oh, my goodness. Jesus, we say yes to the restlessness of heaven that does not rest when there's one one more hurting, one more dying, one more being abused. Lord, as your resting place, we say yes to your restlessness. That you're not okay with people going to hell in our community. That you're not okay with people in a living hell in our community. Oh. When Bishop said that, it just hit my, like my spirit. Yes, Lord, that our rest would have purpose, that it would be an invitation for others to come into your rest. It wouldn't be for ourselves. Lord, we repent of selfishness about your rest, of, of gatekeeping your rest, like, oh, I have this, and I don't want anyone else to have it, or I'm afraid of losing it, Lord. We repent of the orphan mentality of loss when we share. Lord, I pray this place would have the greatest logistical issues in the world starting next week with the amount of people we're bringing into your presence. I pray for a gripping from the inside out that we would not be able to just ignore anymore the cries of the broken in our workplace, the cries of the broken where we go to lunch, the cries of the broken all around us in our family that the, we could not turn our ears off anymore. Lord, we say open our ears. Come on, somebody. Open our ears to the cries of the hurting that you would call us to. But Lord, we know the world, the burden of the world is yours. But Lord, wherever you are bringing us into your burden, we say yes. We say yes. In Jesus' name. We're going to have our prayer team come forward. If you're here and you're like, I don't, I, I'm burdened. I'm lost. I don't know. If you're here and you cannot say for sure that you have a thriving, living, real relationship with God, Jesus made a way for you to come out of your depravity, to come out of your wickedness, because we all were there. Come on, anybody got a testimony? Without Jesus, I am a horrid human. Without the Lord, I am not okay. And you might be in here saying, I'm not okay. We've received redemption now, and it's unto eternity. And you can start today. You can receive the Lord. I don't care if you've been going to church your whole life. If you've never said, I am nothing, I need a Savior. If you've never said, forgive my sins. If you've never said, Jesus, you can have complete authority over my person forever, then you need to be born again today. There are two generations on the earth, and I know we're going long, but there are two generations on the earth, the sons of the first Adam and the sons of the last Adam. And if you are a son of the first Adam still, it means chaos is ruling your life. The, the serpent is still in charge of you because you've not given, you've not received the authority of the last Adam over your life. There's one name under heaven that men shall be saved, and that's Jesus Christ the righteous. If you've not given your life to him, you, I promise you, you might not be in it yet, but your life will be a living hell. If you do not have him as Lord, your life will be full of that abyss, that chaos, and you're headed toward an eternal one. Absolutely. It's not loving to leave this out. <laughs> It's not love to just let you go about your day. Don't walk out those doors into a living hell and possibly an eternal one. 
we have the security of knowing a Savior. And you had the opportunity to know Him simply by receiving Him through faith. You don't have to do anything except believe. And it's the Holy Spirit that draws people. So if you're feeling like I'm drawing you, walk away. But if God has drawn you, come to the altar. Receive the Lord today. Receive the salvation that we have received. The righteousness, peace, and joy of the kingdom that's in the Holy Spirit. Can anybody say they're glad they received that? Anybody here glad they received that? Come on, if you're here and you're not there, as soon as I say amen, get to this altar. If you need prayer for healing in your body, get to this altar. If you just need a prayer of agreement, get to this altar. If your brain hurts because Joseph Encyclopedia Matera just blew your mind about the Bible, get to the altar and receive from the Lord today. Amen? Amen. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. We receive it. As the team just ministers this morning, the worship team, we pray, God, that your spirit would draw all men unto yourself. That you would draw all men unto yourself. That the lost would be found. That us who are found would be continually be free. And that we would be raised up as peacemakers, not just for peace to reign in our heart, but peace to reign in the city of Tampa Bay. Because you are Lord of all. Make it real, Lord. Make it real. And make it happen through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have an amazing day. We love you. Come to the altar. Get a book from Joseph Matera over there. He's got grown children to feed. Make sure to get your children from TRP Kids. First thing you do, please. But we'll see you Thursday for prayer or next Sunday for church. We love you. We love you. We love you. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to this podcast from The Resting Place Tampa. We hope you feel honored, empowered, and full of faith because of what you hear. And we would love to see you at a gathering soon. For more resources like this, head to trpfamily.org.